Well, good morning. Um, I am happy to fill in uh, when our parish needs me, but I noticed that they asked me to fill in when we talk about evil and the problem of evil and demons and Satan and angels, so I don't feel like that's very fair. Um, We are picking up with the sixth petition. This is question 202. And I'm just curious, um, maybe this is not a very Anglican question, maybe it should be a very Anglican question, but if anyone has Bible with them, okay, good. Oh, great, okay, because we may look at some of the the passages. Cramer would be happy, I think. Um, So let's start then with question 202, page 76. What is the sixth petition? Sixth petition is, and lead us not into temptation. And I want to just go straight into question 203. What is temptation? Temptation is any enticement to turn from faith in God and to violate his commandments. Um, I really love that we get to talk about this during Lent, and especially today if you were at the early service Um, The homily has so many connections, the readings have so many connections to the question of temptation. Um, You're in for a treat um, if you're sticking around for the second service instead. But um, the the sort of motif of Lent, the the symbolism of Lent, or the sign of Lent, are these passages in Scripture of the wilderness. And Father Jonathan's homily, as well as his email, uh, maybe it was last week's email or this week's, but, but really uh, spoke really well of this. Israel goes into the wilderness and is tempted. And of course, um, Israel succumbs and, um, uh, and, and does not stand firm with temptation, right? Moses in the wilderness for 40 days. And, and Christ, of course, uh, goes into the wilderness for 40 days and triumphs over temptation. And so when we enter the season of Lent, we enter the wilderness and um, we enter it for 40 days. We try to stay with Christ in the wilderness, which is to stay in the place where we confront temptation. As Father Jonathan said, not because the wilderness is particularly like more tempting than anywhere else we might find ourselves, but because in the wilderness we can confront our own desires, our own disorder, our own uh, proclivity towards sin, towards self, away from God. And so um, it's just a very good Lenten part of the Lord's Prayer. Um, when we pray these lines and lead us not into temptation and then and deliver us from evil, um, we are... We're, we're in a very Lenten uh, uh, place of prayer. Um, this petition is a tricky one as well. And, you know, if you read some of the church fathers on the Lord's Prayer, the, the fellows read a little volume from St. Vlad's Press that is Tertullian and Cyprian in origin on the Lord's Prayer, and it's, it's a really wonderful little book. It's, it's interesting in part because you can see how these early church fathers differ from each other as, as they understand the prayer and where they're the same. 
but they all have to deal with the the sort of problem of the petition, which is it it kind of sounds like God leads us into temptation. That if we're not asking God not to do this, that God's going to tempt us or or it and, and like this is not what you want to think about temptation or God. And so the, the fathers have to immediately say, it doesn't mean that, right? Um, it doesn't mean that God is tempting us. That's not a thing God does. And question 206, we'll return to this, but I just want to flag right away that there is, um, there is a sort of kind of reading of this right away that we want to avoid. God doesn't tempt us. Um, and we'll, we'll maybe get into more why uh, and how, how to rightly understand that uh, with question 206. Um, 204, what are the sources of temptation? I am tempted by the false promises of the world, the selfish desires of my flesh, and the lies of the devil, all of which war against God and my spiritual well-being. Uh, and here's where I'd like us to get our Bibles out and look at a few passages. So, um, Sarah, would you take the Mark 7, um, 14 and 15? Um, Taylor, would you take 1 John 2, 15 through 17? And um, I'm sorry, I forget your name. Becky, that's right. Um, Becky, um, could you take um, Proverbs 30, 7 through 9? And maybe let's just read them aloud in that order. Oh, sure, yes. Um, It's a short one, so I'm happy to read again. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a man which by going into him can defile him. But the things which come out of a man are what defile him. What do we notice from these passages about temptation and where temptation comes from? 
Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes, right. So, um, you know, we don't need help to be tempted towards sinning. Um, we, within ourselves, right, out of a man, the things that come out of a man are what defile him. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. What else do we notice? Yeah. Yeah, right. Yes, and, the, you know, this answer here um, should sound familiar. It should sound like our baptismal renunciation, right? And um, Alex talked about this last week. I'm sure it's been talked about, you know, several weeks in a row. But the Lord's Prayer is, in, in many ways, a summary of the faith and a return to our baptism. So the world, the flesh, and the devil um, are what we renounce, right, in our, in our baptism. And um, so it is the case that our propensity to sin, our propensity toward um, turning from God, violating his commandments, as the catechism says, that we're quite capable of doing this just because of our sinful flesh, right? Because of the sinful nature that we participate in, um, we desire our own uh, way, right? We desire our own pleasure. Um, And the world is part of this. The world, uh, here meaning not God's good creation, of course, but the the world turned from God, right? The, the, the world distorted by sin. Um, and then the devil, and we're gonna get to Satan and, and demons and all this fun stuff in the seventh petition. But it's also the case that we have an enemy who desires this, right? And desires to turn us. So this, is, this isn't great news, right? We're, you know, on our own, we'd be fine finding temptation and, um, and turning from God. And, and we also live in a world marred by sin that, that entices and turns us away. If we had more time, maybe we'd look at Proverbs. But, you know, Proverbs is, is steeped with this, these warnings, right, to, to be aware as you walk, as you sit, you know, that, that temptations are gunning for you. The world is gunning for you. And then we have an enemy who hates God and desires to turn us from God and is pretty good at this. So it's a bit bleak. Um, False promises, right? This is where happiness lies. Selfish desires, lies, all of which war against God. So this is not not neutral. This is not, um, uh, there is not peace, right, when it comes to temptation. We're in the middle of war. And you know, C.S. Lewis, I know many of us read and love him, and he, I think, captures this really imaginatively and well in, in a number of his writings, but especially in the screw tape letters, that you know, there is war happening, we're caught in the thick of it, we're we're blissfully unaware for the most part of this, and we have an enemy who's really crafty, who can use even our piety um, to turn us from God. Um, so, because it's so bleak, it's probably time to turn to question 205. What help 
do you seek from God in the face of temptation? I ask God to increase my faith, to trust him, enliven my conscience, to fear him, soften my heart to love him, and strengthen my will to obey him, that I may resist evil and stand in the face of temptation. There's a lot we can talk about here. And um, I think a, a place to start is that when it comes to temptation, there are two ways to fall off the horse. There is presumption. To presume that um, God's good grace is given to us and that we are in good standing and to presume upon God um, or to presume that we're going to triumph, right? That we're doing pretty okay, that we've kind of got it figured out. And um, uh, a sort of overconfidence when it comes to temptation. Um, Cyprian actually says, this is the part of the Lord's prayer that is most um, most humble. This is the, you know, the, we, we pray this, we pray it right before we come to receive the Eucharist, and we acknowledge by praying this, we can't presume that we're going to be okay. We can't presume that we will resist temptation, and we need help. So presumption is one way to fall off, but despair is the other, right? Um, you know, woe is me, I'm, I'm just, I'm only human, which, you know, is, a, is an interesting phrase that we use. I think it's a really terribly wrong one, right? Um, because usually what we mean is um, I'm going to make a bunch of mistakes and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sin. And that's not what it means to be human. <laughs> um, I'm only human. Uh, I know myself well enough. You know, I'm probably on the whole not much worse than other people, but like I, I'm, it's just inevitable, right? I'm going to be tempted and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fail. And that kind of despair is and the presumption that it's, that's, that's its counterpart, these are both actually failures of belief, right? They're failures to believe what God has said and what God has done. So the, the third option, the one we should be aiming for, is not to get comfortable and assume we're fine or to give up. Like the Christian life is just going to be we continue to fail and are tempted and, 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 you know, this is just inevitable because of, um, because of the flesh and the world and the devil and these things. The, the third way is to beseech God for help, to seek help from God in the way of increased faith, um, enlivened consciences, so um, not sleepy consciences, not dull consciences, uh, soft hearts, that are moved, that respond, not because we're afraid or because we're ashamed, but because we love God and desire God more than whatever temptation comes our way, and then the will to actually obey. And God wants us to ask these things and wants to give them to us. This is not, um, 
I don't think you have to go like, you know, full John Wesley here and, and say, you know, Christian perfection is attainable in this life and you should want it and you can get it right now. To, to still, you know, some, wherever you fall on that, to be able to say, God wants us to resist temptation and wants us to ask for this help. Um, would someone read 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 14? Great. Now, this is in the context of our uh, one of our readings for today. So you'll get the full, you'll get the you know eleven verses before this. And what are these about? In First Corinthians ten. What are we recalling? What is Saint Paul telling us to recall before this admonishment? The wilderness, yeah, exactly. Look what happened to Israel, right? They go into the wilderness. They are baptized through the Red Sea. They eat the spiritual food that is Christ. Nevertheless, they were overthrown. And so there's, there's a strong warning here. This is the warning against presumption, right? The warning against presumption is um, take heed. You're in the middle of a war. Um, you can be overthrown, and don't just presume upon God's grace. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. That's great. You know, that it it's... You know, it's, it's really easy to read the story of Israel in the wilderness and just kind of laugh at how silly they are, right? They've been delivered from slavery. God's done these amazing things. They saw them. They've been fed from the heavens, all this, and it seems really easy for them to, and, and I think this is right. How much more can we, right? So presumption is ruled out here. Take heed. And on the other hand, despair is as well, right? No temptation is overtaking that is not common to man. God is faithful. So you don't despair, not because actually you're doing pretty good, you know. Um, no, you, you don't despair because God promises to be with us in the wilderness. And, you know, I could, we could just listen to Father Jonathan's homily again. Some of you get to still. And, and he makes this point really wonderfully. Um... By the way, there's an interesting theme in the tradition about temptation, that there are different kinds of temptation. There's the temptation of the city in the wilderness. This is one way of talking about this. The temptation of the city is when you go to where the world, the flesh, and the devil are going to be like in your face, and you put yourself in the way of it, maybe, maybe deliberately. And it, you shouldn't be surprised then when 
you're, you're sorely tempted. But there's another kind of temptation, which is the temptation that comes precisely because you've gone into the wilderness. You've gone to be with God. You've gone to confront um, your own um, need for God. And you experience temptation there not because you're making terrible choices and being foolish, but precisely because the enemy doesn't like what could happen. Um, and again, Lewis in Screwtape Letters is brilliant about this. Um, it's Christ is tempted in the wilderness, right? So temptation is also not a sign that's, that, you're, that you're way off. It might actually be a sign that you are pursuing God and that, that um, there's great sort of spiritual benefit to what you're doing, right? You may, you may experience temptation more acutely because you're in the wilderness, not because you're in the city. And I mean, we mean these things, of course, spiritually, not literally. Um, being tempted is not a sign of, of actual um, sinfulness, or of God's disfavor or something, or unfaithfulness on your part. It might be the opposite. So this is something to discern in confession and spiritual direction, right? If you, if you feel like you're going to confession with an unusually long list, and this is discouraging, um, a good confessor, a good, a, a good priest, a good spiritual director can actually help you discern, uh, you know, this may actually be because of, of the, the growth that's taking place, right? Rather than a lack of progress. I find this, I've, in my own personal life, this has been, this has been extremely encouraging. Um, increased awareness of temptation and potentially even increased awareness of your sin, of your failure to overcome, may actually be signs of, of grace in God's work. Okay, we finally get to the... Um, the, the tricky part of the, of the petition here, 206, because does God lead you into temptation? So God is not tempting us. That's good to know. Um, but, right, there, there's a few things that we can say. Um, Augustine will talk about this as God will allow us to be tempted. We see this most vividly in the book of Job. Um, and God will, um, you know, not be completely absent, but will remove himself to a degree um, for our sort of testing um, let's see, let's look here at, um, would someone pull up Psalm 11, 4 through 5, and, um, someone else pull up James 1, 12 through 15. Let's read these.
Great. And James 1, 12 through 15. What do these passages show us about our, our temptation and where, where God is in it? Yeah, yeah, and the, and the psalm especially um, captures this, right? God sees. So um, this is not happening, you know, this is, this is not a thing outside of God's um, knowledge of God's presence. You know, the, depending on your translation, Psalm 11 says he examines or he tests. Um. And he rules, right? So God's rule is not undermined, is not undone by our experience of temptation. What about in James 1? It echoes some of what we've already said about where the source of our temptation is not God, right? But your own desire entices us. Yes, yeah, that's right. That's right, yeah, very good, yeah. Yeah, to use Augustine's um, of way of talking about this, our, our wrongly ordered loves and desires, is that, that's, is, that's where our temptation comes from, that's the reason we're prone to give into it, right? The metaphor here is of, you know, of um, the crown of life, right? That the victor. So this is, this is not testing like, um, I want to see if you're going to get a B minus or, you know, a B plus in the Christian life, you know, at the end of it, we'll see how you do. Um, it's... This is, a, this is a trial, it's a struggle, it's a, um, there's a crown awaiting us. And so, um, I mean, I hate to just reuse everything that Father Jonathan said, but this story from the Desert Fathers, praying, I don't want any temptation, God, is actually, it's not quite the same as praying, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil, which these petitions, in a lot of ways, are two parts of one petition. We want deliverance, we want triumph, we want you know, the increase of faith and a soft heart and a will to say no, but we're in this struggle and God, it, it appears that it's not God's will to just remove all the struggle from our life here. And that in fact, blessedness and the crown come through 
the trial, right? And um, again, this is maybe a comfort that the experience of trial, temptation, struggle is not a failure. It is, it is actually what it, the Christian life will be here to know that and to, um, for that to be apparent, for that to be experientially known, is, um, is maybe actually, again, a sign of God's grace that you're attuned to this, attentive to it. You know, in Screwtape Letters, the, the, the real triumph is not horrible sin, you know, scandal. The enemy triumphs when you're, like, sleepy, right? And, and you don't even have the energy for, like, exciting sin when you're where you're just binging Netflix you know for the rest of your life or or whatever your your particular um, sort of numbing agent is right um, that's that's the the gold standard for the enemy so struggle trial testing um, actually give us the opportunity to grow in faith and obedience the catechism says 207, what are ways to guard against temptation? Actually, I want to just proceed to question 208 too because I think it develops this more. How can the church help you to resist temptation? Um, these are, you know, questions and answers in the catechism that are so rich. I feel like I don't have to expound much. You could just reread them a, a few times and um, be given a really, a really thorough sort of vision of what we do. Because when we pray these things in the Lord's Prayer, again, we're not asking the Lord, like, pluck us out of, of temptation. Pluck us out of the struggle of the trial. We're actually asking for the kind of deliverance that comes through endurance. So um, prayer is, is fundamental. We already find ourselves praying this, whether we're paying attention to this petition or not. If you pray, you know, the daily offices, if you, if you show up for the Eucharistic service, you are praying for protection and strength against temptation. Um, confession, we, we've talked about this some in, in recent weeks, but I think confession is really underrated in some Protestant circles because, you know, of sort of a concern with uh, mediation and, um, you know, we Protestants tend to sometimes overreact against um, what we see as Catholic excess and then just way overcorrect, and for those of us who come into Anglicanism and then did that really scary, weird thing of going to confession the first time, we know just how powerful this is in disarming sometimes long-standing sin by naming it, by saying it was me, I did it, and it was a bad thing, and I'm the one who did it, 
right? And then being absolved and then receiving Christ from the same person who knows the worst things you've done as Christ's representative. I mean, this is, this is powerful and it changes the ground on which we're standing when temptation um, comes toward us. So just, I'm probably just gonna recommend confession every time I have the chance to, and this is one of those times, especially during Lent. Um, seeking the support of fellow Christians and, and the fellowship of Christ's body adds another part of this. And I think there's, um, there's a sense in which, too, a, a proper understanding of our temptation in the context of belonging to Christ's body can deeply change how, how, we, um, how we fight in the struggle, right? The metaphor of the body means that your weakness, your frailty, your struggle are ours. And that there's a sense in which we actually bear our burdens. Like, not just the burdens of like, I'm going through a hard time, oh, now I'm thinking about that in print, but, but actually on the, like, on the real level of reality that as Christians we carry each other's, the, the weight, the struggle, right? And this is not a fiction, this is not just a nice thought, it's actually what's fundamentally true about being united to Christ and being his body. Um, ultimately, of course, Christ does this. So every temptation that you experience, Christ has like actually experienced it as our head and of course triumphs, right? He goes into the wilderness, he's tempted and he defeats temptation. He's, he's tempted in the garden and in Christ's passion, um, it's not just our sin, but it's everything um, that we struggle with, our pain, our loss, our temptation, our weakness, um, these are actually, for the Christian, transformed from, this is just kind of how life is and it's tough, to um, participating in Christ's own suffering. So there's a sense in which joined to Christ, you've already triumphed because of Christ's triumph. And the question then becomes, will you live out of that or not, right? Will you, will you, accept this and receive this. And you know, this is the, the beautiful thing about Lent is you don't succeed at it, right? You don't get to the end of Lent and think like, wow, what a great Lent I had. Really, really did great. You get to the end of Lent and you find that Christ has been with you in the wilderness and has been faithful and, um, and has done what you could not do. And everything you can say about that is also true of Christ's body. So I think that when we, um, when we get to heaven, one of the great mysteries that we'll see is the way in which, without often knowing, our burdens and our temptations were carried by each other. Um, I think the unfolding of that is going to be a, a sort of beautiful, a beautiful thing that for, you know, I guess it's, it's eternity, so there's not time. I don't know how you talk about a long time in eternity, but I just think that mystery will unfold and unfold and we'll see the ways in which um, our lives were interconnected, our struggles were shared, and, our, and, um, and your life was different 
your struggle was different because of, of uh, other believers who you might not even know, right? Like there's an Anglican somewhere in the world praying for you right now. And, and anyway, this is just beautiful. I get excited about it. The, the community of the saints is just awesome. And I love that our catechism points us toward this when it comes to resisting temptation. And, and you know, what happens on that level also should be instantiated on the level of relationship and, 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 and actual communication, right? So the invitation here is to... Um, like, do this to be a spiritual friend and to seek spiritual friendship when you're lonely, vulnerable, struggling, these things. Um, we've got to get to evil, uh, but any questions about the sixth petition? Yeah, yes. I think that is fair. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, and the, you know, um, I think we can get too caught up. We'll, we'll talk about this in a second with Satan, but we can get too caught up and also trying to figure out if it's like the devil, you know? Because like, for the same reason, we want someone else to blame. And um, there's, a, there's a danger there of sort of overrating the, you know, you can, you can definitely make a mistake the other way and underrate Satan and his demons, um, you know, live as if that's not a reality or whatever, but, um, but there's a danger in, in overrating it as well. And I think the catechism does a really good job of, and script, just pointing us to the scripture that says it's, it's from within, right? So it's going to start, you don't have to look very far at all to find why you're being tempted, the source of it. Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah, that's good. This is why we need um, you know, English professors to, to notice the grammar. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the grammar matters here, yeah. Well, let's turn to the seventh and see how far we can get. What is the seventh petition? The seventh petition is, but deliver us from What is evil? Evil is the willful perversion of God's will. Evil defies God's holiness, violates his law, enslaves us to sin, and mars his good creation. Um, we, we don't have... I don't think we have time to go too far into the, the weeds here with the, um, the biblical passages, but I would just flag one to maybe come back to and look. A, a decent Lenten practice as we're considering our mortality, our, our, our sinfulness, as we're seeking to, to be in the wilderness is to look at some of these passages about evil, right? Uh, Isaiah 59, I think I'd particularly commend to you. Um, as a way of confronting what evil looks like, what it looks like for us to violate God's law. You can, I think, also read the story of Scripture, you know, from the fall in Genesis through, especially Judges. Judges is great for this. 
just reading Judges as here's what it looks like when we turn away from God's good life and creation. And it's, it's pretty bad. It's, it's really bad, right? Um, 2.11, if God is good, why does he permit evil? So, you know, I think since we have 12 minutes, we should be easily able to solve all the questions here. Um, You know, why does evil exist? Why does God allow it? What's the point? No, we're not going to do that. Um, I'll just say, I think the language in this question and when we get to question 218 about God redeeming evil, I think the, the language is careful here. Here it says God is able to use evil to bring about good. This is something we see in scripture explicitly said at times, and then other times this is implicit in what what we see. In 2.18 it says God can use all these evils to bring about his good purposes. And I think that that language of is able and can is is careful in a very important way. Um, Namely not sort of over-identifying that everything we encounter as evil is somehow, you know, in, in obvious and clear ways, just God's using it for good, right? This is ultimately true, like the story is a good one, and Christian hope believes this, but scripture is also quite clear, and Jesus himself is quite clear, including in our reading today, that when you see evil things in the world, you actually have to be a little bit slow and a little bit cautious to figuring out how this is good. Like what we want is a quick, a quick sort of theodicy, a quick like, oh, but, you know, maybe it's for that reason or this reason. And um, I think the catechism makes clear that God can and ultimately will do this without saying everything you can see is actually part of, what God has ordained in a straightforward way to do good things. It looks like bad, but it's, it's actually kind of good, right? And that makes God close to the author of evil, if you're not careful. Um, or at least um, it kind of feels like a trick, right? We experience these things often as actually harmful, as marring God's good creation. and. And we should, like, let that be without, um, like, turning real quick, right? And so this part of this is pastoral. It's, this is why Jesus is really not a fan of his disciples trying to figure out, like, why, why this person's suffering or, you know, why did those people die in that accident? And, and um, uh, just, just caution there, I think, is, is needed for and um, patience, Um, both in friendship and in how we, I think, try to represent as a good witness God to to the world when when evil is something the world sees. Christians should be um, not like quickly and neatly tying that up, I think, as as a matter of witness. 
Um, question 212, is God responsible for evil? Um, again, without plumbing all the depths of the mystery of human freedom and God's sovereignty and, and, um, and the problem of evil, one thing I'll say here that the tradition has offered, um, particularly um, in uh, St. Augustine, is to recognize that evil is not actually a thing and that evil does not exist Evil does not have being, because being is goodness. Evil is the lack of being, the lack of goodness. The, the technical term here is the privatio boni, right? That the, the privation of good. That evil is the absence of goodness. It's, there's, there's not actually evil things, there's only corrupted things. God made things, God made a world, God made creatures, and the extent to which they exist is the extent to which they're good, because goodness and being are, um, there's a technical word for this that I'm forgetting, but uh, what, what am I thinking of here, Father Nicholas? Convertible, not convertible, but convertible? Great, yeah. Um, I'll just leave it at that. This is one of these, these you know, follow up with your, your friendly neighborhood priest or your Augustinian scholar like Alex if you want to unpack this more. But, um, but there, are, I think, are ways of understanding evil that sees it as always corruption. Never, it, we, we don't have dualism. We're not Manichaeans. There's not like evil substance and good, right? There's not good God and evil God. Um, it's all lack of good that that brings about um, what we experience as evil. Um, question 213, did evil exist before the human race embraced it? What are Satan and his demons? Um, one of my favorite tweets um, in recent years was was something like, imagine being alive in 2022 and not believing in demons. Um, I, you know, that there's a sense in which we all, by virtue of being, um, you know, North Americans in the 21st century who live lives shaped by like technology and social structures and, and all, the, all the stuff of life that encourage us to think that there's really not more than what we can handle and see and sense. And so, you know, angels, it's a nice idea and stuff and demons, but it's a little bit silly and medieval and all this. Like as Christians, we know that that's not the right answer, but I think it's really easy to still kind of assume it. it and, and of course, and I'm thinking of Brian's uh, successful uh, thesis defense and, and his work. There's, you can go to the other extreme, right, in, in our time of um, a, a sort of everything is spiritual warfare and, and these things. But I think for most of us, we, we're kind of agnostic at best about all this angel and demon stuff, right? And um, I think that's really dangerous. And so 
as, as much as there's a danger to place temptation and sin and evil outside of ourselves, let ourselves off the hook, there's also a, a way of pretending that we don't have an enemy that I think is, is really um, mistaken. And as a historian, so I, I work on American religion and I spend a lot of time looking at the 19th century and the debates about slavery and how the American church failed spectacularly in terms of slavery. And actually this, um, I almost wanna say empirically, makes the most sense to understand the demonic nature of, of racial prejudice like and, and economic greed and that, that yes, our own propensities have have been part of the failure of this story, but also what a what a win for the enemy, the way in which the American church has been haunted by these failures. Spectacular. And actually I think that like believing in Satan and demons makes a lot more sense of, of the facts. Um, that that there are demons that need to be exercised uh, still even uh, from the American church in this regard. That that's my hobby horse. I just wrote it for, for two minutes. But um, let's, let's wrap this up if we can. 2.15, how did Satan and his angels turn to evil? What are angels? Um, just a quick plug for angelology. We, if we're going to talk about Satan and demons, we need to talk about angels. Um, one of the gifts of our church calendar is the Feast of St. Michael and all angels. And the important thing about angels, especially St. Michael, but, um, you know, it's actually, it's not God versus the devil. That's not even a, a thing that could happen, right? Um, God is not, you know, the devil's not sort of just a little bit less strong, but on the sort of same basic level as God. You can't have a fight card where it's, you know, God versus Satan. Um, Revelation shows us this. It's St. Michael, right, who um, overthrows, like Satan's not even strong enough to beat an angel, right? And and this puts Satan in his place. Um, it's not a contest. It it, it's laughably not a contest between God and Satan. God wins, and in fact, God wins through, uh, in, in the case of that final sort of battle, through St. Michael. Um, this is great. It's very exciting for Christians. You should care about St. Michael and angels. Um, how does God overcome evil in this world? And in the interest of time, I think this is where we'll, where we'll have to pause. But um, just to say that when we're thinking about evil of any kind, when we're thinking about our temptation, when we're thinking about um, the problem of evil, these questions of theodicy, the answer is always to look to Christ. You know, the worst thing that could ever happen has already happened in Christ's death that we 
this is how we treated God when God came to us, that we killed him. So um, that's the worst thing that could ever happen, and it also means that the triumph has already been won. And so, again, a gift of this liturgical season and of walking with Christ through his passion is to recognize that this is the fundamentally true thing about evil, which is that it's, it's exhausted itself, it, it can't get worse than it has been, and that everything we experience of evil, um, the long list of things we pray in the great litany to be delivered from, um, all, all of these things, um, they, they pale in comparison to what, what we did to Christ and what Christ's triumph um, means about, about that. So um, we're, you know, as C.S. Lewis says, we're, we're, we're in between, you know, D-Day and V-Day. We're not, we don't see the final resolution of all that, but it's over, right? And the good news of Easter is that the worst thing has already happened and that Christ has triumphed over it. Um, and everything else that's playing out is um, on our way to that final surrender. Um, we'll, we'll pause there. We'll pick up at 2.19 uh, next week. Thank you all.